Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Winston's back. Winston is here, and so is Andrew Decker. Hello, Hello sir. Everybody. How you doing? Okay. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. All right. Well, does that have anything to do with our topic today? It does. Oh, man. Okay. We're, we're doing winners and losers on appeal. And, you know, for a lot of our defenders, I mean, I don't know how many of them actually handle appeals. Um, obviously, we've got some really good attorneys here in this room that handle appeals. I do sometimes. I do sometimes. Yeah. And and so we will be talking about like more appellate stuff. I, I would encourage everybody to do appeals. I, I think it really makes you a better trial attorney knowing how to preserve error and, and right. all that. Y- well, and you learn more from your mistakes than you do f- or, or from your losses and mistakes than you do from your wins and your victories, right? Right. Because you can stumble into victory and not realize the mistakes you made. Yeah. You right. make some yeah, mistakes yeah, yeah. that cost you a win and you realize I can't do that again or this. And, and and I think in the case today, we're not talking about mistakes that cost us a win, but you learn things that will affect how you try cases in the future. Exact, 100% correct. I agree with that assessment. And, you know, writing every once in a while does just kind of make you a better lawyer in general. Yeah, reading and writing. <laughs> That's all appellate work is. So we have uh, a, a return guest yes, on our do. show uh, today. And why don't you tell us and a little this, bit about him? Well, this is Jeff Shearer. Uh, you, you actually need to hold on to that mic because he's going to get mine. We only have okay. two mics today and, and three people in the office. Um, uh, so Jeff is the student become the master. Both of us have mentored him at some point. He's gotten some not guilties. He's now winning cases on appeal. I don't know why he still talks to us. You know, I, I stopped referring cases to you and I just refer him straight to Jeff now. I, I, yeah, I do the same (laughs) thing. Yeah, We we, we want a good attorney. Um, (laughs) Uh, but Jeff's going to talk to us about uh, we both Jeff and I both sent appeals up to the second court uh, this session. Uh, we both got those back recently. Um, we're going to go the winner first. So if you get through his, you don't have to keep listening to find out how I lost. Um, but but Mr. Harris can interview both of us and, and I'm going to sit back and, and relax for a few minutes. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Andrew. And hello, Mr. Shearer. How are you, sir? Howdy. I'm good, Mr. Harith. How are you? That howdy is fitting because, guys, if you could see him right now, he's got like a 10-gallon hat on. He's wearing his boots. And now your office down in Glen Rose. Is that right? Uh, we moved to Glen Rose, but the we, we moved houses to Glen Rose. We moved the office to Granbury. We're right okay. next to the jail, actually. So all of our, our listeners out there in Hood County, Somerville County, or just anywhere else in the Metroplex, give Jeff a call if you need some help because we are talking to a big winner today. Uh, last time you were on, you talked about this case, right? I did. Yeah. Tell us just kind of a brief uh, synopsis of like, remind us what, what we're talking about with this particular case. So this case involved an allegation of illegal outdoor burning in violation of the Clean Air Act, which is something that a lot of us in Texas should really think more about because we've had a lot of big wildfires. Right. And so I think that's part of the purpose of the statute. Uh, it's very complicated, and so um, you can charge it many different ways. Most people get a ticket for it, um, but my client was convicted at the trial level of burning uh, chemical waste. Okay, specifically, like what you know, what what was he 
burning? Was it just like, uh, you know, my grandparents used to have to burn their trash because they didn't have any trash pickup at their house. Is that what we're dealing with? So that is one way to violate the statute. If there's like a burn ban, um, one of the exceptions of the statute involves a lack of trash collection, as you just mentioned. Um, I will say that my client was accused of burning trash in treated wood specifically. And the state tried to say that glue in any treated wood is automatically toxic and also a chemical waste, making it a class A. Okay. So it's the, so we're talking about like, you know, is this treated wood that he would have bought from just a normal big box store, Lowe's or Home Depot or something like that? Or, well, I'm still not convinced that there was any treated wood first off. Oh, okay. Okay. And, um, that was a contested issue at the trial level. Um, and so it's just one of the many, many things that we fought about. Okay. And so you, you took this case to trial, right? You're the trial attorney. Um, and, uh, as you said earlier, he was convicted. Was this a jury trial? This was a bench trial. Okay. Bench trial. And it was also my very first trial. Okay. Well, you know, it didn't really work out at that level, but everything seemed to have worked out since. Right. So, um, any kind of like findings of fact that the trial judge made that, um, you know, you used in the appeal? Uh, in hindsight, I should have asked for some. Oh, okay. Okay. I did not do that. Um, I just uh, came up with what I thought were the issues of the case and, and took it up on appeal. Okay. So let's talk about that process a little bit. I don't think we've ever really discussed appeals um at length here on the show so how did you know how did you initiate the appeal what's like the very first thing that you did uh after you got the conviction i uh was recommended to speak with michael mola which i did okay good yes that's hard that's our first uh recommendation too with anything appellate uh call mola <laughs> Um, and he kind of walked me through some of the administrative things I would need to do, um, like how to do like a docketing statement. Right. Um, concurrent to all this, I also did an appellate bond, which I talked about on the last podcast. Y'all let me uh, on for this topic. Um, and it was a lot of research and just into administrative stuff because you have to have proper font format all this stuff just for them to you know accept what you're filing and um really digging into the statutory scheme to make an an argument that can be logically understood yeah so and all those things are contained in the appellate procedure right the the code the code of appellate procedures right um like the font requirements the um word count um all that kind of stuff so you filed your notice of appeal. Did you file a motion for a new trial? I didn't do a motion for a new trial. Um, I know a lot of people do that because it extends your appellate deadline. Right. Um, but I did file a request to extend the deadline anyway, which was granted. Okay. And then, um, so let's just get in right to your the brief that you filed. Um, first off, you had, you actually argued this before the court of appeals, right? 
I did do an oral argument, yes. Yeah, so in your brief, did you have to request oral argument? I did. Okay. And so that has to be specifically noted somewhere on your brief, correct? Yes. Okay. And I think most people put it on the first page of the brief. Right. It's kind of like up where the style is or underneath the, the title of the brief and all that. So um, what what are the points that you appealed on from the bench trial? Well, the court kind of danced around a lot of the arguments I made. Um, there's not a lot of case law in this statutory scheme. And so I got creative with the arguments and I cited a lot of case law stating that the camera footage from the officers contradicted their testimony. And that was my main argument for the court to overturn uh, the judgment and sentence. Okay. So they used, they used that discrepancy um, in overturning the verdict. No, no, that was, that was my main argument. Oh, okay. That was your main argument. So then, um, all right, well, let's talk about the opinion. Well, actually, you know what, before we get into that, uh, you filed your brief, the, the state uh, filed their brief. Yes, I imagine. Right. And then um, tell us a little bit about like the oral argument. What did that look like? How did that go? Uh, I thought it went very good. I was very prepared for the oral argument. Um, I rehearsed it several times for going up there and I had all my pen sites and everything ready to go. Uh, A&M taught us how to do like a cheat sheet to go up there with. So there we're not fumbling through papers. And I, I thought it went very good. So and then was it a hot court? Like, did they ask you questions throughout your presentation they interrupted uh, myself and the state several times okay and um like as far as their questions were concerned was there like a general area of the law that they just kept coming back to or was it just kind of randomly asking you questions uh one of the questions i remember most is they were asking why they should overturn the trial court um which is one of the things I really learned from this experience is that they will look for every possible reason to sustain the lower court's decision. Yes. Yeah. That is a, a general opinion of the courts of appeal throughout the state of Texas. Not any court in particular, Mr. Decker. I'm not disparaging anybody on this episode. So, um, okay. So you're there oral argument you've got your presentation you're prepared you've got your brief that that is citing this discrepancy between the camera uh, the 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 body camera and the actual testimony um what was the state's what 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 was the state's um uh, response to you know your brief and and in oral argument um uh, the, the state was just digging in on this belief that anything could basically be considered a chemical waste and so they really went to great lengths to justify that even saying that bottles and cans can be a chemical waste and a plain reading of the statute in my opinion is that those only qualify as a class c misdemeanor um and apparently that's what the the court went with okay uh so now let's talk about the court's opinion that was issued on this. Cause this ended up being a big win for you and your client. Um, what did, you know, what did the court say? Well, they basically said most of my argument, uh, did not have merit. 
Okay. <laughs> except that um, they kind of said that all that was proven was a Class C misdemeanor. Ah, okay. Right. So they're looking at the facts of the case according to the statute. They didn't. It's not like they're overturning the statute or or even really defining something a little bit better. They're just saying in this case, what he was charged with, the facts presented at trial are not a class A misdemeanor. They're a class C misdemeanor. Yes. Okay. And so um, I love that. Like how you said, like, well, Mr. Shearer, your argument is crap, but you're going to win anyways, you know? Um, So what then has, so they issued this opinion was it remanded? Was it just entered as a class C conviction on against your client? How does that like procedurally what happened? Well, it was pretty quick, actually, once it got back to the trial court, like in a, a week or so. Uh, in a week or so at the uh, trial court, we had a new hearing. It was reversed and remanded to enter a judgment of a class C. Oh, OK. And so. Um, I did have to have a conference with the state about how do we do this, you know, cause it's not something that happens a whole lot. Um, and so we kind of figured it out and it was pretty simple once we draft, once the paperwork was drafted. Yeah. That's a, that is something that I don't think I've, I've never had any experience with, um, abiding by a court of appeals order on remand. Uh, and so I know that that is a pretty valuable experience. I mean, I know I'm now. I, I am now going to call you if I ever do have that experience in the future. All right. So what did your client think? Uh, he was pretty happy about it. Um, you know, it was an appointed case and I think it went a long way with him that I took it that far for him. Any indication from the prosecutor on this case that like, Hey, this is going to change how we prosecute these cases in the future. So I'll say this about the opinion, even though I don't agree with all of the reasoning in it, I think it clarified some things in the case law that's helpful to both sides. Okay. Like what? Like give us an example, um, if you know off the top of your head. Well, it just, it, it indicated what types of things can prove certain elements. And, you know, even if I don't necessarily agree with that as a defense attorney, it's good for me to know that information. Well, yeah. I mean, it'd be good for everybody to know how a court of appeals is going to be viewing any particular case. Uh, uh, and yeah. they and they did translate some of the complicated statutory language uh, into a, a simpler to understand elements-based test. So it sounds like the Clean Air Act is fairly convoluted. Yes, um, so, and, and, you know, like you said, with the, um, with all of the wildfires that are happening currently, you know, this is probably not an issue that is just going to be found in this area of the state. So any of our listeners out there, if you have a clean air act question, we now have an expert here, um, who has won in the court of appeals, um, in a, in an offhanded way about what, um, you know, how to, how to interpret some of these statutes and really how to, how to best represent your client. Um, so Jeff, I, you know, what I, what I, my takeaway is on this is even if, you know, I've got an appointed or a retained client and we don't win, we don't get what we want in the trial level. 
maybe we should, you know, just just take it on an appeal, right? Because the court of appeals here, you thought you were going to win with one argument, and the court of appeals is like, well, you're going to win, but not that way, right? I mean, I think that's I think that's a great result for your client. I'm, I I do too, um, and the the interesting thing about it is that the dissent um said it should have been reversed altogether interesting okay who um how many just how many judges um dissented just one or just just one yeah well that's uh that's a pretty powerful dissent there um based purely off of like which like what grounds the the fact that the stuff that you presented in your argument or did they just kind of go off the wall as well well the the opinion is very complicated there's more footnotes in it than i've ever seen in something like this but the dissent was basically just saying that um the majority opinion could lead to absurd results right um he was also the one that asked the most questions at the oral argument okay yeah, I mean, uh, it's nice to have. Of course, those don't really care any weight. And ultimately, your client um, was happy with the result. He would have been happier with a complete reversal. But um, you know, we that that this is still a win, sir. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, great job. Now I wonder what happens then for our defenders going up against a court of appeals that you know does try to look for ways to just uphold a trial court uh ruling you know let's talk about the other side of the coin we've got one that that one and and honestly i know jeff would have loved that if that opinion said mr shearer you are god's gift to lawyers this this opinion that or this brief that you filed is well written and we should all bow before your legal prowess he still won, but it didn't really quite, you know, it was kind of like a, we're ignoring everything you wanted to win on. <laughs> yeah. But you're still going to win. Yeah. Um, congratulations, Jeff, first of all. But in some levels, what you're saying is he run, he, he won on dumb luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, hey, man, if, hey, I, if hey. I got dumb luck, I'm, it's better than nothing, right? That's right. That's right. It, but it, seriously, congratulations. If he hadn't filed it, he wouldn't have won on that. Exactly. Right. So there is something to be said for just going to... Stepping up to the plate, right? Sure. Stepping up to the plate, right? Um, uh, yeah. I was told once upon a time that showing up is half the battle. Yeah, right. GI Joe says knowing and half is half the battle. Well, he won the right half on that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. He didn't win GI Joe's knowing. He won the showing up. Uh, so r- part part of what we have to remember is anytime we appeal something, the first rule of the appellate court is to uphold the finding on the court below, right? So in our line of work, what gets appealed are guilty verdicts. Yeah. So it feels like all they're trying to do is just make sure the man is beaten down. <laughs> well, that's just because we're of what we do, right? The rule of any appellate court is to, if at all possible, sustain the the judgment below. Yeah, defer defer to their judgment, right? Right. Yeah. Because they're the finder of fact, because they're the ones who can can judge the credibility of a witness because uh you know they can see things that happen in the courtroom that the 
court of appeals can't see. So, right. So while we give them a hard time that all they're doing is just finding an excuse to, to keep our man guilty, it's true, but that's not really what they're doing. So that's just reminding everybody kind of what the standard is on any appeal, civil or criminal. So on your appeal, we've talked about, have we talked about this case before? I can't remember. We've talked about a lot of your cases. Um, <laughs> this one, I, I we may have mentioned it probably a year ago. Yeah, we probably talked about it because almost exactly a year ago we tried this case. Right. So so tell us, uh, just give us a brief rundown of the facts, if you don't mind. Right. So, uh, and, and this was... Oh, geez. Three or four years ago at this point, uh, a delivery truck, 18 wheeler is making a delivery out on a rural road um, and is making the last delivery of the day. And while making that delivery uh, is parked on, uh, I think, the westbound lane, if I remember correctly, it's not really important. He's parked in one lane, completely, completely blocking the one lane. It's in a passing zone. The other lane is unoccupied. Uh, it is late in the day. He's making that final delivery. And while making the delivery, a truck comes over the hill, a, a pickup truck and runs into and goes really lifts up the back end of this 18 wheeler off the ground. Uh, and thank, thankfully no one was, well, no one was seriously hurt. There was, there was no life's life. Life was not taken, taken yeah. or anything like that. And everybody from what I understand has fully recovered. Right. And um, okay. So uh, 18 wheeler driver was charged with obstruction of a highway. Okay. What we plead our DWIs to if we, if we can't work yeah. something else out. Interesting. And I know, cause we tried the case together that, you know, uh, my question was how can you obstruct a highway when there's an entire passing lane that's open and available that this kid could have gone around this truck. Right. I mean, that was, that seemed to be the issue um, at trial. And there was, there was a whole mess of, it's like, it was like a wasp nest of, of issues also kind of collateral to that, but that seemed to be really right. The issue, right? Right. So yes, that, that was primarily the issue. And there's some case law that, that, that says that if you basically find a delivery service, guilty of obstruction of a highway that's going to be an outcome that's absurd basically yeah um in the court of appeals and so so we so i i filed a an appeal basically on sufficiency of the evidence right um primarily saying that this is an outcome that would be absurd we're, we're basically finding someone guilty of making the delivery yeah uh why would we want to do that um and basically they go to sufficiency of the evidence and they go through and pull out the facts that would sustain the verdict. Right. And I, and I've, I've, I've told my clients, if they can find a hook hook to hang that verdict on the trial, the appeals court's going to, going to leave it there hanging. Um, and they took some of the disputed facts and said, if the rational fact finder found and the, in, in Mr. Harris, you might remember, there was dispute on whether the ground, whether it was wet, right? How dark it was, whether it was foggy, um, and basically the court of appeals ended up saying the rational fact finder could have found that it was dark, foggy, and wet, um, and that those things would make it more dangerous to park that 
that truck there. On right, because that's a, a that is a that is in the code uh, for obstructing a highway. Would is, make it unre- un- unreasonably uh, hazardous. Uh, yeah. Right. So given the conditions, um, they can sustain that verdict. Uh, I think if it were a clear sunny day, it would have been a tougher deal. Right. Um, they even said that the state doesn't have to doesn't have to show that there's no other contributing uh, broken laws. For example, a distracted driver. That doesn't mean that you could have two people breaking the law, ended up with an accident. Doesn't mean that the truck driver didn't break the law that he's charged with. That he's charged with. Right. Um, well, that's aggravating as all hell. It, it is aggravating. Um, so it is. I can see how they get there, right? From from my from my client's perspective, I'm like, if the kid hadn't been distracted, he wouldn't have run into the back of a pickup at 55 to 60 miles an hour. Right. Um, that that's not unreasonably hazardous. That's distracted driving. Yeah. Uh. So so it, it, they they take the disputed facts and say the rational fact finder could find all of them. Right. In favor of the guilty verdict. Uh, and so they, they, they sustain that on the sufficiency of the evidence. My, my two, uh, points on that. Um, and, and it's, it's frustrating, right? Of course it's frustrating. So, um, okay. So, so again, same procedure, you filed an appeal, a notice of appeal, um, you submitted the brief after looking over all of the, you know, clerk's record or reporter's record, all that kind of stuff. The state filed an, a brief in opposition. Of course. Of course. And then did you request oral argument? I did not. They did not grant us oral, oral arguments. Oh, you did request oral argument. We did. You did. Okay. And they said, no, we're not going to do oral we're argument. Gonna, on this. We're, we're, we're going to hear it on the writing. Gotcha. And um, um, okay. Well, that's that is. It wasn't nearly as exciting. Right. Uh, <laughs> I also argued that the jury charge uh, was insufficient because we asked that um, uh, the following sentence from the case of Morrison be included. Uh, no violation of the statute is proven by evidence that shows the defendant only caused a slower passage or moment impeded progress uh, because the case law says that that that's not proof enough. Right. And they said that because it's not in the code that, that it would basically be um, speaking to uh, how do they put it? And when I read it, I was like, I know exactly what they're talking about. Um, basically it would be improper, improper comments on the way to the evidence. That the, putting that in the jury charge would be improperly calling attention to, by the court, evidence that slowing down and stopping really made him not liable. Uh, I, I just don't know, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, because I the reason that I remember doing that is because th- there's no, there's very there's no definitions in the obstructing highway passage um, section of the code. And there's all sorts of definitions in a jury charge. Right. And so we don't really have any definitions available to us on like what exactly is obstructing a highway. 
And I think it's really important for a jury to know, hey, these another court, right, had had decided that this is or is not uh, obstructing here. Sure. It, and basically they conclude that we were not entitled to the separate jury instruction on slower passage or momentarily impeded progress. Because such instruction, such instruction would merely negate an element of the state's burden of proof. Well, basically, we were trying to say they can't prove that, right? right. Um, that they have to. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, so sadly, that's just frustrating. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know what's the point of having case law if you can't have the finder of fact know the case law, right? Um. So they they overruled that that and at the end of the day they come back and they say hey you know our job is well they looked at it they gave reasons um, basically they cut the facts uh, where every every place where where there was a spat, dis, dispute of fact they said the rational fact finder could find it was darker not lighter it was wet not dry it was foggy not clear it was dangerous not not dangerous and so they could get to the point where they said that parking of a truck impeded or obstructed the highway because it impeded progress and it was unreasonably hazardous um i don't like it yeah i can see how they get there doesn't mean i have to agree with it i don't like it either um and obviously obviously my client was not excited not about pleased that. about it he yeah. was not excited uh so it, well and i don't i don't blame him honestly um you know man's just doing his job and this distracted driver uh you know plows into the back of him right i mean i you know it is um i think i think that whole situation was uh was an an unfortunate event uh putting it lightly um, for yeah, everybody involved. I, yeah, I, th- I, yes, it was an unfortunate event for everyone involved. And I don't know that one of the things that I think has happened in the last 10 to 15 years is that things that used to be handled civilly and that I, that I don't mean that, that they were handled, uh, kindly, kindly. Yeah, right. I mean, like they were handled in a civil court. We've now turned those things into crimes or you know this this who's more at fault i don't know right right? that's a civil decision and that's where the money is going to be handled right um people who used to be that hey you didn't pay my bill uh when you know when i did work for you you sued them now you go and you take you say that it's uh you've stolen services and you've committed a crime yeah. Well, that's a dis- it could be a dispute of contract. Exactly. Right. Um, so we we've, we've criminalized some things that used to be civilly handled. Well, and people are just flat out taking advantage of the criminal justice system to be a debt collector. I mean, how many times have we had cases where it's like, hey, I'll, I'll, we'll just pay restitution in exchange for a dismissal? You mm-hmm. know, in that in that situation, or a much lesser, right? Right. In that situation, we you know the government, the prosecution is acting as a debt collector for a private individual. And that is... And a free debt collector. Yeah, and, and absolutely, yeah. And that that is so improper and inappropriate. And I, I think there's a lot more stuff going on that we get heated about this case, uh, Andrew, but 
we want right, to really go there, but right, right. There are some things that that are not in the brief that are not that we can't really discuss at this point. Um, wouldn't be advantageous, but uh, but I was disappointed. I was disappointed that they that they found this guy guilty or that they sustained the verdict. Um, so now you you know now that they've rendered their opinion, it can like you can continue to fight up to the CCA, right? And file we a could. PDR and all that. We could. Any, like, what how, What would that look like? How would that go about? Do you well, know? We, we would have to basically um, file a petition for for uh, review. Right. They don't have to do that. They don't have to accept it. Um, uh, and then if they do, then you actually write up your briefs and send it in and, and actually have that, that heard. I don't know as clearly. And the fact that this is a memorandum opinion with no dissent, uh, I th- think they would say we're not going to no issue. It. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. I don't think there's enough there w- with it being a, mem- a memorandum opinion. And again, not a single dissent. I-, I don't think the, the, cause I've actually appealed, sent one up to the CCA when I was a clerk where the dissent said, this isn't right. And you know, this is where it's wrong. And, and they still said no. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I can't imagine they would take a memorandum opinion and go, no, we're, we, we want to hear this, this and fight it out one more time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I understand that. All right. But you know what, buddy? I'm proud of you for fighting. Showing up to half the battle. That's right. Unfortunately, the knowing got me. Well, it is what it is. <laughs> the knowing usually gets me, though. You know that. Yeah, well, we know. So, um, uh Jeff, you you uh you know we occasionally ask about what you're reading. Um, and you brought a book in and you said, Hey, I got a book I want to talk about. Uh so briefly, tell me tell us what you're reading right now. Uh well, this is a book that caught my eye in like a antique store, used bookstore. I don't remember which one, but it's called America Gets Mad. M A D D. And it's about mothers against drunk driving and how it got started and what they try to do. And <clears throat> I did not realize I had an idea, but I didn't realize just how powerful they have been in changing a lot of the drunk driving laws in our country. Significant. They are significant players in that. Right. And um, actually, they uh, politically, I think, are still very active, obviously, and they're responsible for a lot of the things like uh, bond conditions requiring interlock devices. Uh, They've just made a lot of... uh, things more penalizing uh for drunk drivers or people accused of drunk driving cool so if you can find it it's it, 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 I, the book is sitting on my desk i can see it uh it is it is not a new book but my guess is you could probably find it uh on amazon they do some used books or uh, maybe on your kindle device america gets mad m-a-d-d uh for mothers against drunk drivers and you know, knowing knowing the history sometimes definitely plays out because our prosecutors may not. We may be able to say, hey, look, this is purely a political agenda. It's not necessarily a uh, benefit or cost, cost, right, public safety issue. Um, so we're wrapping it up. This has been another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Uh, for Andrew Harris and for Jeff Shear, I want to thank you for uh, listening. Uh, remember, you can find us on the web at texascrimdefense.com. You can find us on the Facebook at Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Did you say the Facebook? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, I thank uh, Professor Markovic because he would say if you're on the Google, if you're on the Facebook, or if you smoke the marijuana. Um, <laughs> uh, 
and, and we were all convinced he might be doing that because he always threw in the the but actually english is the second language and lots of languages you have to put the uh the, the article before so he did it automatically uh but anyway listen to us again if you have an idea reach out to us because andy and i are obviously not the smartest guys in the room um even when we're alone <laughs> 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 thanks for listening we'll we'll uh, talk to you soon